Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Ann Friedman. And I'm oh, <laughs> gotcha. I'm I'm Ann Friedman. You are Aminatu. So this is Call Your Girlfriend. On today's agenda, death. You want to be me? What does that mean? Listen, I don't want to be misleading. Next thing you know, it'll be like, ugh, like your great, brilliant comments will be credited to me. We have enough problem with that already. Like, like looking at you, Shine Theory people. I'm like, let's just keep it very clear that you own your ideas. Wow, 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 wow. I'm just trying to do Freaky Friday (laughs) with you every Friday and you refuse. Oh my God. Okay. What age did you first watch Freaky Friday? Are there two versions of Freaky Friday or just one? Oh my God. See, okay. So I know Freaky Friday, the, um, the, the yogurt lady version. Yes. The Jamie Lee Curtis 2003 version with Lindsay Lohan, which is an incredible version. However, there is also a 1976 version with young Jodie Foster. What? And I watched it frequently as a child. I loved it. Um, she, Barbara Harris, Jodie Foster, and John Astin. Yes, and Patsy Kelly. Yes, what? And young Jodie Foster is like like a butch icon, like a baby butch icon in this movie. Like her fashion is so on point. Nineteen seventy six. I believe there's a water skiing climactic scene, if I remember correctly. The Barbara Harris like mom vibe is very like Mrs. Robinson, sunken living room. Like it is so I watched it. I mean, I you yeah. are blowing my mind right now. This is one of these like, uh, you know, like where on the millennial scale are you situations where the, the three years really come back to bite me in the butt. This is amazing. I mean, yeah, I think that's part of it. It's also just like, you know, my family, we were allowed to watch like only the Disney Channel when it was free. My mom would like tape everything from the Disney. See, again, like old millennial would would like vhs record everything on disney for the week that it was free and like disney was like not putting out their best stuff right they were like you can have our 70s hits during the free trial week and then when it went back to being a pay channel we went and only watched our vhs tapes including freaky friday which i've seen a million times okay well i know what i'm doing uh this friday okay the point i was originally going to ask you though is like when i watched this as a child i was like ugh, like i don't want to switch bodies with my mom obviously not but like switching bodies in general for a day sounds amazing how wonderful like walk around in the world as someone else like this is why all i did was read books as a kid now i'm like that sounds like (laughs) that sounds like a very challenging experience but as a child i was like bring it on you know i'll try anything twice and then i'm done so are you trying to say you've already body swapped once (laughs) listen i'm gonna look into it (laughs) sorry that is like a that is like the most digressive beginning to a show ever (laughs) i know i know um well we're heading out back on the road for a special event in Washington, D.C. We'll be at the Benson Ball October 26th. And you can go to callyourgirlfriend.com slash tour to find a ticket link. What are we talking about today, Anne Friedman? Okay, well, it's not exactly body swapping so much as uh, leaving your mortal physical self behind and um, not being around anymore, i.e. death. This is a death episode. 
I really have been wanting to do an episode about like particularly feminist issues surrounding death for a while. A couple of years ago, I um, went with friend of the podcast, Beth Pickens, who's like a huge death head <laughs> to see a mortician activist and writer named Caitlin Doty speak. Are you familiar with her work? No, I am not. Tell me all about it. So her thing is that she started off as someone who was like basically just fascinated by death and then uh, took a job at a crematory in her 20s. And then from there has like gone on to become like basically an advocate for talking about death, destigmatizing like the process of dying, demystifying it, removing some of the um, culturally imposed fears that a lot of people have about even addressing the topic. So she refers to that as the death acceptance movement, death positive movement. And she founded a, a collective called the Order of the Good Death, in addition to writing lots of books and operating her own funeral home in Los Angeles. And I think she has like some really interesting things to say about not just the physical process of death, but like really a lot of social and cultural things that surround it. And in fact, like make things a lot harder on people as they are dying and on the people who love them because we are collectively not really talking with any kind of acceptance or straightforwardness about the fact that like we're all going to die. She's also the author of uh, her latest book, Will the Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Big Questions from Tiny Mortals About Death. <laughs> You know, as a fellow death head, I am very excited about this. Yeah. So uh, here I am with Caitlin Doty. And I will also say up front, we did this interview in her office. And so you can kind of hear some office noises. It's not the sound of like bodies being prepared or anything. It's literally just like doors closing and people walking around. So if you hear a little bit of that, it's just because we did this interview in person. If someone is listening to the first two minutes of this show and they're like, oh God, I don't know if I can hang in here, not only because of existential dread, but just because of pure squeamishness or this is my lunch break or whatever. How do you do the handholding for the squeamish? When you're say eight years old, you start to have the understanding that you are mortal, that you are going, that it's not just your cartoon character who's going to wake back up, but that you are going to ultimately be out of existence, as will your dog, as will your parents, as will all of your little friends. Like, it's a really existential, terrible realization for a child. Right. And I think that that's when you start to hear children say, you know, oh, what does this mean? What is grandpa doing under the ground? What is this dead squirrel? And my somebody told me recently that their son kept asking if he was going to poop after he dies. Mm -hmm. Just these questions that are more bodily than spiritual, but they're a cry for engagement. Mm -hmm. They're a cry for please tell me about more about death and what it is. And that's the kind of conversation I'm encouraging. I am not an expert on spirituality or what you should tell your child children about the afterlife. Mm -hmm. That's not what I do. But I can tell you about corpse poop. I can tell you about bugs eating you. I can tell you about decomposition. I can tell you about all these physical things that I think truly believe the more you know about them, the better you feel. The feedback is, I'm scared, I feel depression, I feel anxiety around death, and I find that you having a sort of relentlessly upbeat, positive, I'm going to engage you whether you like it or not attitude works for some reason. Even if they can look at me and go, oh, I'm never going to be like that person. I'm never going to be that interested. I'm never going to be that obsessed with death. That's fine. You don't have to be. And you probably shouldn't be. You probably shouldn't <laughs> aim to end up like me. Let's not judge your life choices like yeah. that, okay? Like, <laughs> I'm very happy. I yeah. have a great life. But 
we give a lot of our public conversation to why it's important not to judge people for their sexual thoughts or thoughts they consider deviant. But we don't say it's totally okay to have thoughts that are morbid as hell. I want to backtrack a little bit to your own story and ask you how you kind of got from that spark of fear slash interest as a kid to this is my profession and my livelihood and my passion. Like, you know, what were the steps in between? I was a medieval history major in college. I was very academic. And so when I got a job at a crematory when I was 23 years old, that was very different than anything I ever saw myself doing. But I had almost an anthropologist's interest in Mm -hmm. it. I wanted to see what was really going on with death behind the scenes. And it's hard to describe this to people, but within two or three weeks of working at the crematory, it was like, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing. And not just working in the funeral industry, but translating what was happening behind the scenes to the public. Mm. So for for someone who's listening who is not familiar with your is it fair to call it a critique of the kind of the modern yeah, sure. industry? Yeah. yeah. So maybe describe the kind of like funeral industrial complex as it exists now in America. Yeah. You could say that it started in the Civil War where bodies needed to be taken from the South and brought back up North. And so embalmers, these new class of tradespeople, would follow the battles of the Civil War. Battle to battle, set up tents, almost like ambulance chasers, prop up abandoned corpses that they had embalmed to show their work like a mannequin in the window, and they would embalm the bodies in a a very primitive way with filling the body cavity with sawdust and turpentine and all these things, and then send the body arsenic, very deadly, and then send the body back up north, which was a useful service at that time. But then what you see happening is the Civil War ends, and all those same men are like, wait a second, that was our job. That was our racket. We need to go out across the country and convince people that embalming is something you need every death. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if they're transporting long distance. We need to embalm everybody. Hmm. And prior to that, it was a community type of skill. It was a woman's job primarily to prepare the body in the home. The men would build a casket and the family would take care of the death from beginning to end. The beginning of the 20th century is really this shift to these men convincing a country that it was not safe or it was not legal for the women in the family who had been taking care of the bodies to take care of the bodies and that you needed to hand them over to a professional to do everything. You needed to pay for this service now. Ugh, and there these was men TM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's very it's very it's like tale as old as time, right? Yeah. But It's also about capitalism, industrialization, the rise of cities. And and in many ways, funeral service does make sense, especially when I look at it now. I always get so insanely jealous of people who get to work in small towns in funeral service Mm. because you have, oh, we just went down to the local registrar and hand signed the death certificate. And then we took mom on a carriage through the street. and, And then you get to Los Angeles and death is a bureaucratic hellscape here. You know, it's so hard to get the permits. It's so hard to get bodies from Echo Park to Santa Monica to where they need to go. Mm-hmm. It just, everything is so much harder in a city. And it would be incredibly hard for a family to do everything themselves now. Mm-hmm. So many parts of funeral service do make sense. Embalming still makes sense if you're flying mom to Germany mm-hmm. or you're flying mom to Mexico and there needs to be a viewing when she gets there. 
it's just the assumption that in every situation, a body needs to be immediately handed over to a professional, embalmed, given a casket, given the whole nine yards that I really question and I think society needs to question. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing hearing you lay it out that way too is sort of like, I can see very easily how fear plays into this of like, oh, like the first thing we need to do is get an authority figure involved because I am so scared of like what might happen if I'm alone with a body. I mean, like Mm -hmm. I have not had to make this decision first person like in my own life, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that too, about how this bureaucracy has kind of fed the fear part of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's been devastating, frankly, for our relationship with death. If I had to sum up my job in one sentence, it would be dead bodies are not dangerous. (laughs) That's my prime. I will never get tired of saying that. It's my deepest truth that I need to express to the universe, which is that we need to redeem the image of the dead body. Because I see the dead body as an incredibly useful tool for grieving, for engaging with your own mortality, for engaging with mortality that you never got a chance to explore in your life because the bodies were hidden away from you. Mm -hmm. So when mom dies at home, yeah, there's absolutely a primal fear of just being alone with your your own mother. Mm -hmm. That somehow she transmorgifies immediately upon her death into some creature that's actively decomposing and Mm -hmm. threatening you in some way. And call a professional. It's an emergency. Get someone to get her out of here right now. Okay, and then we can chemically preserve her and maybe she's then safe to be around, which is just absolutely untrue. Mm -hmm. And a narrative that's been built up over the last 100 years to our absolute detriment as a culture. Mm -hmm. Because it's completely safe and completely legal to just chill out with mom for a little while. And in fact, I only ever hear pretty positive things about that experience. And and sometimes very, very extreme positive things about how just settling in to a moment with mom and seeing that she's no longer suffering. Mm -hmm. Seeing that her breathing isn't labored. Seeing that she's, she's okay now. She's still, she's silent. Seeing the small changes that remind you that she is dead now, which is an important thing to know. To synthesize, right. Exactly. That's an important thing to take in and start your grieving process because it's not going to start and end in that room. It's going to be a long, long process. Mm -hmm. But kicking that off with... I I did some final things to care for my mother, just like she cared for me growing up. I washed her face. I closed her mouth. I held her hand. I was present with her. I gave her that. I gave myself that. These are important things that the funeral industry has taken away from us in many ways. And there are a lot of people in the funeral industry who do want to bring that back because they want absolutely what's best for the family. Mm-hmm. But there are people in the funeral industry who have so internalized that what they do as a quote unquote professional is so vital and so important that they will continue pushing it on every family that comes through the door, no matter whether it's good for them or not. I had a question for you about all the ways death is a feminist issue. <laughs> and I'm already starting to answer that question in my mind, given the history that you laid out. But I'm still curious about your answer. It's a feminist issue. And in the United States, it's a very big intersectional feminist Mm -hmm. issue because you have immigrants who come to the country. You have different, you know, racial, cultural groups in the country that have very specific rich death traditions. And once they are funneled through the American death system, it comes out this cookie cutter, specific, very expensive way of death. 
and the people who want to be served are not served properly. So you have places, there's something that I want to talk about called ready-to-embalm laws, which are laws that exist, I believe, in 20 or so states, which mean that you always have to be ready-to-embalm, which means your funeral home has to be outfitted with all of the hundreds of thousands of dollars of infrastructure to embalm a dead body, even if you are a Muslim funeral home, a Jewish funeral home, a green funeral home like I have, Mm -hmm. a funeral home that just offers cremations, even if you are not part of this funeral industrial complex, you have to be ready to embalm, which is such a high barrier to entry to anyone. There are some states where a Muslim has to go to school for embalming, even though they would never, ever, under any circumstance, embalm a body. Mm -hmm. So this sort of one-size-fits-all regulations that we've pushed and come up with are not at all reflecting the diversity of our country or what we need. Right. I'm curious to hear you talk a bit more about on like a policy side, what else is um, really preventing people from getting the kind of specific experience they want from a funeral home or like what's preventing, what, what are sort of these enshrined in law barriers that are upholding this idea, these really old ideas about what people need post-death. Interestingly, beyond the ready-to-embalm laws, a lot of the enshrining is done on the individual funeral home level. Hmm. So, for example, I don't have a problem. I mean, I have a personal problem with it, but technically I don't have a problem with somebody walking into a funeral home and the funeral director says, we will not have a viewing for your mom unless we embalm her Mm -hmm. and put her in this nice casket. They're a private business. That's the way things are run in the United States. And so they're allowed to say, we will not offer you this service unless you do this. Right. But what happens is not that. What what happens so often is that they say, it's actually, unfortunately, it is the law that she does need to be made safe to be viewed through in the embalming process. It is required. So families are told explicitly that these, you know, extra $1,000 service here, $4,500 casket here, that these are necessary within the law public safety concerns about the dead body or she needs a sealed casket because that's protecting her from the ravages of what happens to her underground. Like, oh, you mean decomposition, what the body is supposed to do? You know, (laughs) these things, these narratives that the funeral industry will tell families, that's, I think, more detrimental than the laws that are in place right now. For the most part, there are laws in certain states that require you to use a funeral director, which are wrong and should be changed. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's what's happening on the individual family going into the individual funeral home level and the knowledge that they just don't have. And there's no reason they should. You know, it's not like we grow up with the, like, it's not like your mom sits you, dad sits you on the old knee and says, you should know that you have more power than you think when it comes to the corpse, my son. Like, (laughs) that's not what's usually said. Okay, but have you done that with any children you know? I'm, yes, of course, yeah. Any any (laughs) child I can get is immediate indoctrination (laughs) into death positivity as soon as I can. Um, But yeah, so it's, it's more, the laws are actually pretty good. The laws do say Families have a ton of rights, more than they more than they know. The law says that families can do most things for a funeral themselves. Mm-hmm. They say that they can sit with the body as long as they want. They can keep it as home at home as long as they want. And by keeping it at home, you're skipping over the high prices of the funeral industry. 
And again, I'm not against even you spending money on a funeral. If you want a funeral that's $25,000 and every part of it, you're like, oh yes, mother would have loved this. We're having such a good time. Great. Mm -hmm. But what I hear so often is, I paid $12,000 for the funeral. Mom looking bomb. I didn't like it. It was creepy. She had makeup on. It was not how she looked at all. Mm -hmm. There was this weird expensive casket that was kind of uncomfortable for me. The plot cost this much money. The hearse cost this much money. We were told we needed these prayer cards, but we aren't even religious. You know, just these things that you, because of the cookie cutter nature of the funeral industry, get sold and you feel like you have no other choice mm -hmm. but to purchase them because the professional is telling you you need them. And you're incredibly vulnerable at that point. You're so vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that, that discourse has been going on for 40 years about the American funeral industry. Mm -hmm. Like this is not new discourse. And that has shown a huge, a huge rise in the cremation rate. Just 20 years ago, the cremation rate was like 3% in the United wow. States. And now it just went over 50% because people are saying, well, just cremate them then. If I, I don't want to deal with all this stuff at a funeral home, I'm just going to cremate the body and not see it. And that's it. But that's also not maybe the best thing. You know, throwing out all ritual and all connection with the dead body is also not the best option. Hmm. I want to talk about your decision to open your own funeral home. How many years ago was that? Four years ago. Four years ago. About what that process was like for you of being like, oh, I actually want to be someone who's doing this differently. If a lot of this, if a lot of this plays out at the level of the funeral home, as you say. There wasn't a funeral home like I wanted to see it in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot in the country right now. There are getting, there are more, we're working on it. <laughs> but the idea was to have a funeral home that was women owned, that was based on these principles of green funerals, natural burials, low impact viewings, meaning no embalming or no expensive caskets, delayed removals, meaning we don't have to come pick up your mom right away. She can stay there as long as makes you comfortable and we'll work with you to do that. Mm -hmm. um, these principles, being a family coming in, being involved, witnessing the cremation, working with us to prepare the body. These are things that we all, that we really believed in and by we, I don't know who I'm talking about. Me, <laughs> me and my, me and my eventual the people that worked with me, right? Really believed in these in these ideas, and that's why we started. And it's it's been very educational. Running a small business is very hard, especially in the funeral industry. There are really low margins, meaning you don't you people think that funeral homeowners make a lot of money, and funeral homeowners at huge, big fancy funeral homes do make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Funeral directors themselves do not make a lot of money. Small funeral homeowners do not make a lot of money. And it's an incredibly hard job. Is that why the casket upsell is so common? Absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a low margin business. So mm -hmm. for example, you know, we're making maybe, if you come and have a cremation with us, we're making maybe $200. But that's a huge amount of work. Mm -hmm. That goes into to everything, to, to coordinate everything, to do all the paperwork, to work with the government, to do the follow-ups. You know, this is a lot of things that go into it that is not maybe clear to the family. I guess that it's really helped me understand where funeral directors are coming from, too, because... I want to make sure that I can translate, and this is what I'm really, as I'm moving into, we're opening a new funeral home right now called Clarity Funerals. And the reason that I really want to get this model right is because I want to prove to other funeral homes, other funeral directors around the country, other people considering starting this kind of business, other young women considering starting this business, that it can 
keep all of these principles, clear, transparent pricing, a lot of compassion, a lot of family involvement, green ideals, Mm -hmm. that you can keep all those things and also make a living, that you can also attract people and make money and not be afraid of technology, Mm -hmm. like making it a lot easier for the family. Um, It's just a real, it's a hard tipping point to hit. And I want to be there when we figure it out. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Caitlin Doty. It's interesting listening to you talk so much about families and working with families. You know, we talk a lot on this show about friendship and about chosen family. And I'm curious about how you've seen that play out in the work that you do, because often when we talk about, say, like a medical crisis, how difficult it is, even if your primary people are, you know, are essentially like platonic, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how hard it can be to get them in the room and seen as important to your life. And I'm curious about not only how you kind of account for that in your business, but whether, you know, me as someone who's listening to this, who's like, wow, you know, like when I think about who I want really taken care of when I die, the answer is a lot of friends, you know, Mm -hmm. not just biological family. It's the most boring logistical thing in the world, but I cannot say it enough times, advanced directives, advanced directives, advanced directives. And what is that? Advanced directive (laughs) is, oh, I'm going to tell you. Oh, yeah, yeah, get me. You just Google whatever state you live in or country, frankly, Google advanced directive, your state, Mm -hmm. and it will come up. In California, where I work, it's called the advanced healthcare directive. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that you have the legal right to assign whoever you want control over your body. And usually it's also connected with your medical care. It might not be. Just do a little research in your state. But ideally, it would connect your medical and end-of-life care with your post-death care. Mm -hmm. And that means that if you are trans, if you are LGBT in any way, if you just hate your parents or hate your family because they don't support you or your lifestyle, Mm -hmm. if you love them but you know that you want your partner or your friends to take care of you instead, it cuts off the natural succession of parents because we have something called the next of kin and that's how the law goes. So when we figure out who's going to decide who cremates the body, who's going to decide what the service is, we are legally required as a funeral home mm-hmm. and you're legally required as a hospital or healthcare professional to go down, it's called section 7100 here, down the list parents or, or partner, married partner mm-hmm. is first, then your parents, then or then your children, then your parents, then your brother and sister, mm-hmm. niece, nephew, that goes down and down and down the list. And friend is really not anywhere on that list. Sometimes it can get there at the very, very end. But if you pop that friend or that partner or that colleague or whoever it is that you really trust to do what you want, if you pop them in that advanced directive and advanced mm-hmm. healthcare directive, all of a sudden, they bulldoze over everyone in line and go straight to the top. And you're going to make sure that they do exactly what 
you want. Mm -hmm. And so if you have someone like that in your life who you would trust to do that, it's an incredible tool to make sure that that happens. And when you hear stories about like people being misgendered after death or it's heartbreaking because that could be avoided with an advanced directive. Right. And so practical question, I Google that I, you know, fill it out in a Word doc or whatever. Do I just do I print it? Do I keep it? Like, what do yeah, I do with no, that? No, that's a great yeah. question. So many, some states will require some sort of notarization, but most states, it's just two witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you sign it. You say, you know, who your first choice is, who your second choice is. You can also say other things like, I want my organs donated or I don't. Mm-hmm. I want to be kept alive or I don't. You can answer those kind of questions for yourself as well, which is helpful for dealing with your mortality. And you print it out. Make sure that probably two or three different people have access to it. Mm -hmm. Make sure that it's in a very, some people suggest putting it in your freezer because that's everyone. No one's going to be confused about that. Sure. You know, in a, in a folder labeled death documents, death stuff, death stuff. But most (laughs) importantly, make sure that the person who needs to do it, who's your first choice and second choice, that they have it. They know about it. So if for some reason you die unexpectedly and your family swoops in and they know that, you didn't want them, they can just, that's their trump card. They just mm-hmm. roll in and they're like, oh, excuse me, <laughs> sorry to bother you, but here's my advanced directive. You know, this is this is me now. Right. And all of a sudden, like, if there is an advanced directive, as a funeral professional, I can only work with that person. Mm-hmm. That's the only person I'm leaving. And, and sometimes it's heartbreaking where you know there's a partner or someone involved, but the partner had no advanced directive. They're not domestic partners they're not le- and i am not allowed to even if the family doesn't want me to talk to them i'm not even allowed to talk to them mm-hmm. legally important advice important <laughs> advice I have to get say about that. corpses aren't dangerous get your advanced directive Ugh, if you relieved. if you know nothing else from this important things to know especially reading this latest book which really is so much about like weird shit and bodies mm-hmm. if i if i could like really distill sure and It made me wonder a lot about how working in a way where you're so constantly confronting bodily realities, how that has affected your relationship with your physical shell. Mm -hmm. I think what further complicates it for me is that I am also a public woman. Mm. Wait, you mean you've been conditioned to think about your body as a woman? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. what? Um, You've been conditioned (laughs) to be commented on on the internet? Yeah. Fascinating. No way. Yeah. So there's... This place that I think I've tried to get to that's healthy, That because for a while I was like, I have to be this exact weight that is neither makes me too attractive or able to be commented on negatively. The Goldilocks seriousness. The Goldilocks yeah. seriousness place where yeah. all of a sudden I am like woman advocate who will not be commented on physically in totally. any way. And how do I get to that place where I am so neutral? that nobody gets to say anything about that and they're only engaging with my work, which of course is a fool's errand. An illusion. An illusion, mirages. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that I'm trying to get to a place now where I just want to be healthy in my own way. I know that certain things like you don't see, for example, and I had to tell my father this, that you don't see many 75-year-olds or 80-year-olds or 85-year-olds who are dying at 300 pounds. Mm -hmm. They have already passed away earlier. And that's a controversial thing to say, but it's what I see 
in front of me. You know, same thing with smoking, same thing with different lifestyles, same thing with riding a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know firsthand what kills people. You make different choices about your body because of the work. Because that you of do. the work that I do. Yes. So when you see the evidence in front of you of what is killing people, I do less of those things mm-hmm. than I used to. I think I also, because I started out as such a intellectual person and we all spend so much time on the internet and by intellectual person i just mean like trapped in my brain sure um and we spend so much time online now that you really do have to force yourself to be like remember i am a body i am a future corpse i have to force myself to remember that all the time absolutely and even if you're just kind of checking in with yourself throughout the day and you do some bends down to the floor and do some breaths and Mm -hmm. this is basic advice but you know remembering you are mortal and your mortality is not just in your brain. I don't just have a brain in a jar mm-hmm. that I am also in this physical flesh. Like I need to celebrate that more, right. engage with that more. Yes. You're not like going to upload your brain to the internet and no. live forever. And in fact, I, I, I loathe that idea. Yeah. I think that's not good for our, especially since it's mostly a kind of outlandish privileged man who is <laughs> into that idea. Sure. It's like the worst, the worst Silicon Valley bros. It's the, yeah, it's the is. worst Silicon Valley bros yeah. and the worst tech people. And when they say they want to live forever, they don't want everyone to live forever. Mm-hmm. They just want them to live forever. Their precious brain. To yeah, survive. their precious yeah. brain. Like, oh, thank God, like this specific, you know, thank God Peter Thiel will exist forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blessed be. Yeah. But it's funny, I asked that that body question too, even as much as like, I am someone who I would say I'm not the most squeamish in the world. Like I don't like, you know, getting blood drawn or whatever is no big deal. But like I had a big gnarly blister this week and I was just like, oh, I'm kind of grossed out by my like corporal self, you know? (laughs) And I just, I was wondering, I'm just like, I wonder if Caitlin ever has that feeling. Oh, totally. It always blows my partner's mind that I don't like to watch either horror movies. Mm. I don't like to watch videos of operations. I don't like to watch like gross things happening medically to a person. Yeah. For some reason I can make a distinction that when the person's dead, I can say they're not in pain. And so it doesn't gross me out that much. But when someone is like being torn apart or like anything like that, I just, and someone's obviously in pain, I cannot handle it. I Mm -hmm. do not like it. Do not like, nope, nope. So that's a living body. That's a living body. It's Mm -hmm. a very different thing for me. And I think that there's a lot more, in some ways, advocacy around the dead body is, is easier for me. It, mm. it, it, it doesn't make sense to me why people fear the dead body so much. Because the dead body, <laughs> to me, is so much less threatening than the living body. The living body feels pain and mm. mental pain and physical pain. And, you know, there's all this stuff wrapped around it. A dead body is just chilling. Mm-hmm. Like, what happens to it beyond that is all fascinating scientific stuff. The way it decomposes, the way it's eaten by animals, the way that it turns colors, like mm. it puts it almost at a remove because once you've been around dead bodies, you know that they've left the building. Mm-hmm. And whether you believe they've gone somewhere else is completely up to your own viewpoint of the world. But the reality is they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And you can truly sense that and tell that. Yeah. And so you want to be respectful to them. And I am, but I do not feel the same torture that I do about a dead body that I do pain or suffering in a living body. Right. I've noticed you've gone out of your way to kind of say that the anything that is about the kind of spiritual aspect of what happens to your soul when you die, that kind of thing is the realm of other people's work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I do find myself curious about whether your personal views on that have been shaped by people you've met or that your 12 years in this industry of doing this work mm -hmm. or whether whether you've had an evolution on that on that end of things. I don't know that I've had much of an evolution. I think I've had an evolution in accepting and celebrating what I started out believing, which is that death is the end. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are very scared of the void, mm -hmm. of the idea of going into blackness and nothingness. I have come to a place where I celebrate the idea of the void. Mm -hmm. When I think of dying, I really do think of it like before I was born. It's nothingness, but it's not a nothingness I'm conscious of. I'm floating in a nothing void. Great. God, that sounds fun. That sounds like a vacation. <laughs> if I could turn my brain off now, I would sign up for it. You know, I try the meditation apps. I do all of that. It's hard mm -hmm. to not be constantly churning around in your own mind. And the idea of freeing myself from that is actually seems like my heaven, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and in the, the idea of the idea, I once had a woman say to me, you know, it's going to be so amazing when you die. I know you don't believe in heaven, but I do. And what that means is that you're going to arrive in heaven and all of the people that you've helped in the funeral industry are going to be there to greet you. Okay. And I was like, oh, that makes me very uncomfortable. I don't know these people. So that means I have to like- A room of strangers. Exactly. Like my introvert <laughs> self has to like show up and work with all these corpses that I worked with. And like she was describing about. hell. She thinks you're going to hell. I know. I was like, are you damning me to this fate? And she did not. She truly thought that she was like giving me this gift. Um, you know, bless her. But it, it that is not what I wanted. The, the idea of continued consciousness in some other realm mm -hmm. doesn't appeal to me. And I think that it was it, that wasn't a natural fit. It was really scary to think about the void mm -hmm. or the fact of, I think it was Nabokov who says we're all just like a cradle hanging in the darkness with lights on either side. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is scary to contemplate, but I have come to a place where I do celebrate that and and feel like makes whatever you can do to make yourself feel more comfortable and more positive about eternity right and i think sometimes to make better choices in in your time on earth mm -hmm. right i want to go back to the book real quick and then i'm going to ask you like a lightning round last few questions Ooh, okay. before we're done but um i have to start this with a personal story because i i could not get out of get it out of my head while i was reading which is um so when I was in junior high, probably seventh grade, we took a field trip to a medical teaching hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, where I saw my first corpse. And first, like, skinned, except for the lips, as I remember it, corpse. Maybe I just had uh. a weird, maybe this is my child brain, but it was very traumatic for me. Like, there's a, re it's part of the reason why I don't eat meat now. Like, mm. I really, anyway, it was like a very, I would say, um, not positive confrontation with some of the physical realities mm. of death that you write about. I went home and like begged my parents to change their donating their bodies to science designation because I pictured school kids like pawing at my dead parents. It was like, it was really hard for me. And so I'm curious about, be they adults or children, if there is a too much too soon when it comes to this stuff and how you kind of find that balance for yourself or maybe for like a little person you are helping to learn about these things. Yeah, I think that it's all from parents especially, really go with your child's questions and interest, really go with their level. Because I am not as concerned about 
parents coming to children and saying, here are all the physical dark realities of a dead body child. Like, this is a whiteboard and we're going to list them all with like a PowerPoint presentation. That does not happen for the most part. The much more likely scenario is a child having all of these questions and getting shut down Mm -hmm. by the parents and made to feel like it's not safe to have those questions. It's not safe to ask those things. And so I am much more interested in that child being made to feel safe and Mm -hmm. like there's an open dialogue. Um, But I think that there's also a way to keep things more lighthearted. And yes, if the, if the child is asking, I am terrified about grandma dying, of course you can have a serious loving conversation. Mm -hmm. But if the child is asking about more wild, interesting bodily things, the conversation can be more open, more lighthearted. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that when you did that, which is really surprising that they did that with kids so young. That's that's. It was one of two death field trips I had as a child. I mean, I love a death field trip, but I think I I can, yes, I can see why that would be too much. Yeah. Um, Especially, like, they need to give you a lot of context for that. Sure. Like, a lot more context than it sounds like they did. Yeah. You know, and a lot more Q&A, a lot more, here's exactly why we're doing this. Here's exactly what's happening. This is why it's helpful. This is why this person is doing a great thing for for humanity. Here's mm-hmm. all the ways that your body's fascinating and interesting after you die. Here's all these things we can learn. Right. You know, it sounds like that. Um, if they did say it, it got buried by your experience with the <laughs> right. physicality of the right, body. Right. So I think that you really need to, if you're going to confront a child with something like that, you mm-hmm. really need to give them a, a lot of context. Right. You know, it's kind of just like throwing kids into like hardcore bondage porn is the first thing they see. Like that's that's maybe not the, I mean, yeah, go bondage porn, A+, plus, but like that's maybe not the first thing that a... 13 year old should see sure that shapes their brain um so working up to that kind of context and i I hope that you've been slowly able to (laughs) i'm coming back through (laughs) that fear yeah it's a you know as a body for medical sciences is great that's a great thing to do with your body sure and i I, what about adults though like too because i think that there is um the resistance is a little bit different if you're thinking about you know a 37-year-old woman who doesn't want to think about the realities of death as opposed to a Mm seven-year-old. Well, I I think there is a difference, but there's not that much of a difference. Like this book is is also speaking to adults who never got to have that conversation. I did read the Justin Timberlake reference. I know you're speaking to adults (laughs) and not children. Yes, yes, there's definitely, it's for, I mean, and I, I think that precocious, I think the precocious 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds will enjoy it, but it really is for adults who want to talk to kids about this Mm -hmm. or just never, their inner child has never had anyone tell them about corpse pooping. Mm -hmm. Their inner child has never had anyone tell them about, can you or can you not have a Viking funeral Mm -hmm. for grandma? You know, these are questions that you maybe have or would make you feel a little more comfortable with death, but nobody's giving you that opportunity in all your 37 years. And so, you know, let me talk to the eight-year-old within you. Right. This is a permission slip to ask all your weird questions. Exactly. Um, Okay. So my lightning round questions for you. Oh, man. I don't know if I can do lightning round. You can do it. I know you can do it. I know you can do it. Okay. Um, Just within my body. So one thing we always ask everybody is about, like, who the friends are who, like, shape your day-to-day in a real way. And just wondering if you wanted to shout out someone specific in terms of, like, Someone who's really supported your work or you or your core people. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, My core people are the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. And they're also young women. I'm going to shout out Sarah Chavez, Louise Hung, 
and uh, Susanna Alba. Also, Amber Carvely. I'm shout out everyone I work shout with. Shout out everyone you work with. Shout out all the women I work that. with. Yes. Um, <laughs> they are so fantastic at their job. They're so devoted to the mission that we have at our nonprofit at the funeral home. They make working every day fun because they're so good at their job. Like there's nothing better than being surrounded by competent women. Mm-hmm. Very fantastic, smart team of women. Right. Okay. What is a book that you find yourself recommending again and again? Can be on the topic of death or just whatever. Mm. Oh, there's so many books I recommend again and again. I mean, you can um, just list them yeah, all too. One of, yeah. <laughs> um, Elif Bataman's The Idiot. Mm-hmm. I love so much. I just read Fleischman is in Trouble, which I absolutely loved. Taffy Ackner. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. great. As far as death books, The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, I recommend a sort of like a fundamental text for me that really exposed why we fear death as a culture. And it, it doesn't say a lot about what you can do about it, but it does help you be aware of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, those are my those are my three. Okay, favorite snack? Lately, it's been almonds because I've been trying to get more protein, more... <laughs> uh. Honestly, getting an almond milk ice latte every day with a little honey is mm. like one of the profound joys of my life. I always say my first sip of coffee in the morning is like honestly one of my peaks every day. It really is. Like I, I live around like every day I'm like, at what point will my almond milk latte become mine? <laughs> and then I have to go, I have to leave my house, I have to leave my job, I have to leave whatever I'm doing mm-hmm. to go get it. And then when I get it, oh. it's just such a joy. And finally, where can our listeners find your work, find like, you know, all of, I know you are so good about putting all this info online so they can fill out the forms they need to fill out and find out what's going on in their part of the world. So if you have any questions about the bigger topics we've talked about, green death care, advanced directives, orderofthegooddeath.com, we have a really robust resource section Mm -hmm. that me and my colleagues have put together that will answer pretty much any question that you have. Um, If you want to find me, Ask Mortician on YouTube is a good place. The Good Death is my handle Mm -hmm. everywhere. And just Google Mortician and my (laughs) annoying face will pop up. (laughs) That is amazing, actually. That is is, you've made it. You've made it that you were the top page of Google results for Mortician. Caitlin, thanks so much for the work you do. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you for coming by. How lovely. I think everyone should think about death so much more than they do. Yes, we should 100% think about death. Like maybe not all the time, maybe not as much as um, All the time and... (laughs) All the time. It will bring you so much joy. I also love the fact that she has tons of resources that she mentioned. Like if you don't have an advanced directive or if you're looking for a little bit of support and guidance as you timidly tread into thinking about these issues for the first time, she has lots of resources on her website that we will link to in the show notes. See you on the internet, boo-boo. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. 
where Sophie Carter Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs> <laughs>